Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Steve Suits, who is the author of Overturning Brown, the Segregationist Legacy of the Modern School Choice Movement, new from New South Books. Steve, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Uh, So before we dig in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell people just a little bit about your background and who you are and how it is that you came to this particular project. Sure. I'm I'm a Southerner, so I like to talk about myself. Uh, I'm uh, a native of Alabama. I was uh, born and attended the public schools and the University of Alabama. Uh, I I got involved... uh, uh, at the university uh, after the passage of the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965 in uh, voter registration in the nearby majority black counties in Alabama. And that uh, that led me into uh, uh, my first exposure to, uh, to watching uh, uh, cow pastures uh, uh, become over a matter of weeks uh, the site for what we called segregation academies as the uh, Federal courts enforced the desegregation orders after Brown versus the Board of Education. And it took a long time for those orders to get to uh, to individual schools, but uh, by the late 1960s and early 70s in Alabama, it was beginning to happen. I uh, I went on to, um, uh, to it was the founding director of the Alabama Civil Liberties Union, which I did for five or six years and uh, dealt with uh, school issues uh, desegregation issues, among others. And uh, then I moved to Atlanta in 1977 to head up a group called the Southern Regional Council. Uh, it no longer exists, but it was for many years the uh, oldest interracial organization uh, of the region. And the issues of desegregation and private academies were very much uh, on the agenda of the uh, Southern Education Foundation before I got there and and after I uh, I was there, and uh, after a few years I, um, I I stayed there for eighteen years actually, and then I after a few years of uh, teaching and and writing I decided to to go and join uh, some old colleagues at the Southern Education Foundation, which has a long history that goes back to. 1867, when uh, the Peabody Fund was founded, um, and the Southern Education Foundation, where I stayed for about 20 years, uh, looked at all the issues of equity in education. It had a history of having helped to uh, build the public education system in the South, and so this whole issue of public schools and private schools has always been one that it's uh, on its agenda. Uh, at, at SEF, my major concerns were, of course, uh, how do we create a, uh, 
a, a, a democratic school system where everybody gets a chance for a good education. And we looked especially at issues of race and poverty. Um, as we began to get into the 21st century, uh, we began noticing then that there was a, a rise in the number of, of low-income students in the public schools. And uh, we began looking at both the, the, comp, the causes that might be behind that increase, and we began looking at uh, what it meant for uh, the, the challenges it meant for public schools. One of the one of the reports I did then, Stephen, uh, that I don't think got enough attention. Uh, it was one one that really uh, I, I I thought needed more public discussion around the country. Was a, a report that I did in in 2010 on uh, children in extreme poverty in the United States, looking especially at how the school districts were being affected by in some cases, very large percentages of students who were in families, not just who were poor, but whose family income and benefits were less than half of the poverty rate. Uh, So poverty and uh, race and education have been uh, the the lodestars that have guided my concerns uh, across my 45, 50-year career. And uh, today I'm I'm an adjunct at Emory University here in Atlanta and uh, continue to try to, to write and, and speak on these issues. So this this is a book that, that it seems to me in some ways is about a history that I feel often has been flushed down the memory hole. Um, you trace out what are, are the, I think, it's it's fair to say the explicitly racist and segregationist roots of charter schools and voucher programs and the like, um, which I think is is not something that I regularly hear uh, referenced when in 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 modern conversations about charters and vouchers in particular, uh, and and even less so if we're talking specifically about private schools. Um, so I wonder, I wonder if if as a way to sort of work our way through some of that history, if we might start in the present. Mm-hmm. We will often hear rhetoric about school choice. What are we talking about here, and how widespread are these policies, in your view? Well, I think what we've done, uh, without people, uh, the general public, uh, noticing, is that uh, we have today erected the scaffolding of a national system of public support for private, largely unregulated private schools. Uh, there are 26 states in the union that have some kind of, of private school voucher program. Either uh, most of them support uh, either through tax credits, in other words, where the rather than sending your tax dollars to the state, you are able to send them to a private school or an intermediary that sends it on to a private school or a direct appropriation from the, the state legislatures. We have 26 states uh, that have these programs. And in those that, have, that were begun in uh, 10 to, to 20 years ago, those are the ones that have, have continued to go from being small programs to very large programs. For example, here in the state of Georgia, uh, we have a program of private school support in which taxpayers can send as much as $100 million total 
each year to private schools. Nationally, uh, the number is right now, state governments are sending about $2.1 billion a year to private schools. And that is more than the state appropriations, the total state funding of public schools in any, uh, in 13 of uh, the states across the nation. So this is a, a program that isn't as widely known as is if it were a federal program, but it has taken hold in a majority of the states and it is involving real money. In addition, uh, for those who may be paying attention to the Trump administration, we know that uh, the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, a longtime supporter of public funding of private religious schools, uh, has been proposing every year since the first year of the Trump administration a massive federal program to take monies that are now being given to public schools to support low-income students' performance, to take that, that kind of, those monies, a portion of those monies, and send them to private schools through some kind of voucher program through the states. So this is real a real national issue, and I don't think most people understand it as such. And so when we when we look at, at those those private schools, those that are receiving those public funds, uh, what is it that we can say about those in terms of of the 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 income and race of the students who are most likely to be there? Well, the income is always very high. Um, uh, the for example, in most states, the family income of a child's family that's going to a private school is somewhere between three to five times larger than the income, average income of the public school student. So this is generally uh, schools for the wealthy or the well-to-do. And it is predominantly white or Anglo. Uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, the, if you look across the, um, the landscape today, what we see is that it's not only a majority white school enrollment in the private schools, but most of the, uh, most of the kids, the, pri the white kids, actually do not go to school with any students of color or only a very small proportion of students of color. So, uh, for example, uh, if you look at the, I don't know, the state of North Carolina, uh, the, the data in 2012, uh, when I uh, ran those numbers, there are always a lag in them, 73% uh, of the white students attending private schools in North Carolina were attending a school in which there were less than 10% uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, or Native Americans. Uh, that's in contrast in that year to only 18% of white students in the public schools being in schools that were ex essentially uh, virtually exclusionary. So we're talking about a s private school system when you look across the landscape and and uh, aren't confused by uh, an occasional exception to the rule. 
what you see is that the rule is that private schools, as they have historically, are serving predominantly wealthy white students. Uh, so that's the perfect segue. Let's let's talk about that historically piece. So so where do these come from? Right? These just didn't magically appear in the Reagan administration, correct? That's right. That's right. Uh, the, the, the fact is that uh, we've had private schools in the United States. There were private schools before. There were public schools, actually, in the early colonial days. But uh, the, it was a very small portion of students who, uh, who went to private schools until we move into the 20th century and we get to that major landmark decision of Brown versus the Board of Education, the 1954 decision in which the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed school segregation in the public schools of America. And most of those cases were from the South, but one was, as you know, from Kansas. Uh, That's where uh, Linda Brown lived. Although Kansas itself had an actual segregation law, um, as did several other states in the Midwest and, and and in the West. But when that decision occurred, that's when we began to see, not only in the South, but especially in the Southern states, a a major increase in the the growth of both the number of public schools and the enrollment of schools, private schools that already existed. Uh, That's when private schools became a big sector in, uh, in education. That growth continued and accelerated almost always in correspondence to how vigorous and how widespread the federal courts were enforcing the uh, Brown decision in local public schools. So that uh, we saw uh, in the South, there was began to be growth in, after the 1954 decision, but there was a true acceleration once the Brown decision was being enforced in specific locations in specific states. And that's true in other parts of the country as well. So inextricably, the growth of of private schools in the United States has been tied to this whole issue of whether we're going to have desegregated public schools. And as we desegregate the public schools, among other things, many parents uh, set up private schools to escape desegregation or went to private schools that were already predominantly white, if not, if not segregated as white, and began to enroll their kids there. And this, this required state legislatures, among other things, to, to write new laws, right, in order to make this possible. This didn't just sort of happen of its own accord, correct? That, that's exactly right. Uh, the uh, it happened in, in various ways. Uh, the, the state legislatures in the South and seven Southern states passed voucher bills. Uh, these were uh, uh, ways in which to send state monies to private schools. Uh, they, they, looked, they looked then just very much like the voucher programs look today. There were tax credit vouchers uh, after Brown, as there are tax credit vouchers today. There were direct appropriation vouchers, as there are today. So it looked very much. Uh, the, there was also... I referenced uh, Stephen that I had uh, had had worked in in my uh, 
when I was a college student and, and afterwards in the in what's called the Black Belt of Alabama, that area of, which is predominantly uh, African American uh, on voter registration. And, and it, I actually did witness, I would be driving down the road in, in, uh, in Hale County, Alabama, or Greene County, Alabama, and there'd be a cow pasture there. And I would come back in a month later, and there'd be construction crews building what became an, a segregated academy. And I often not only watched that, I watched county, uh, county bulldozers and county equipment being used to help build these uh, segregated academies that were private schools. So, uh, and, and there's been documentation of this uh, that, uh, during those years by uh, the Southern Regional Council, which I later worked for, by the Civil Rights uh, Commission. Uh, so there was both a lawful uh, support, or at least it, it was done through legislation. Uh, there was both the legislative uh, approach to, to supporting and building up private schools through voucher programs and other ways. Uh, and then there was this extra legal program uh, where monies and resources from the public schools and the and and the public entities were taken uh, to to help build these private academies that that later uh, many of which still exist. And that's you know for me one of the I think that 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 for for many Americans who who often uh, uh, will have uh, what a fairly thin understanding of their own history and and especially when it comes to history of sort of the post-civil rights era. When they think about opponents of segregation, they will think maybe about George Wallace, and they'll think about Bull Connor, right? They'll think about these these grand dramatic moments. But I think one of the things that is useful about the history that you tell is to draw our attention away from these large-scale dramatic events and look at sort of the nuts and bolts of what's going on in state-level legislation and and financing. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, please go ahead. Uh, you know, I I think in some ways our uh, our media made collective memory is such that we uh, we remember uh, the the what 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 I call the no not one segregationists. We remember George Wallace and the stand in the schoolhouse door and his inaugural address of segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. We remember uh, the Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett and others, but the fact of the matter is there was another type of segregationist, a segregationist who said, token desegregation still lets us be white folks who can promote white supremacy and control everything. And those are the kind of, of segregationists who, in fact, drew up most of the plans by which the voucher programs and the other efforts to defeat Brown were implemented. Those were the kind of segregationists who actually built the resistance to desegregation in the public schools in the South. What is the role that Milton Friedman plays in all this? <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're going to get me in trouble with all the libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is you're probably in a little trouble with them anyway. 
<laughs> well, I think so. I think so. I'm not 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 being invited to any uh, socials there. Uh, Milton Friedman uh, wrote a, a chapter of a book, a collection of, of academic essays in 1955, uh, several months after it was published, several months after Brown versus the Board in 1954. And he wrote about the role of government in education. And he essentially made the case that the government ought to get out of the business of having schools, what he called government schools, a term that, uh, that President Trump has used in his uh, State of the Union address. Uh, just last just, week. Yep. Just last week. And he, uh, he is a true believer of, of, uh, of libertarianism and free enterprise. He believed that the government should support private schools and let them compete for students, and that that way everybody would get a better education. Now, he, he dropped a footnote in this essay. A long, all, that footnote almost takes up an entire page of this academic book. And that footnote essentially says that it had been come to his attention that there were uh, some southern states trying to resist desegregation who had, in fact, begun to adopt exactly what he was advocating. And he said, well, you know, that he was against uh, segregation, but the fact is he had, he had no trouble with their, the state supporting a private school system in which there would be segregated uh, schools, in which there would be all black schools, all white schools, and some mix, what he called mixed schools. Uh, he, he, in fact, um, did not actually originate uh, this notion of, of uh, vouchers for private schools. Uh, if you look at the history closely, you will see that there were uh, some major segregationists, especially of uh, a man who later became a, a state court judge in Mississippi by the name of Tom Bradley, Brady, Tom Brady, who, uh, who wrote what was called the Southern Manifesto in the, of the time, uh, in which he also talked about how it is that the way to defeat desegregation was to, in fact, uh, be, get the government out of having uh, these monopoly schools, as he called them, and to uh, begin to allow the government to support folks who wanted to keep segregation of uh, their children alive. And that became uh, a major, I mean, it became the, the libertarians, uh, the libertarian thought of Milton Friedman was married with the segregationist thoughts of the South. And uh, so that by the 1960s, the, um, the state of Georgia passed a state constitutional amendment, for example, in which it said that parents and students had a right of association and uh, they could associate with whoever they wanted to. And that was the state constitutional amendment that enabled the voucher program to be established in, in Georgia. So the fact is that Milton Friedman he, he was at best agnostic about whether we have democratic institutions of, 
that are schools that serve everyone uh, and do not, in fact, discriminate. Uh, he, you know, we, we have to remember that his, Milton Friedman's devotion to his ideas was such that he, he also opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because yep. he said that, that uh, private uh, businesses should have a right to discriminate because the government ought not be getting into that. Uh, so his, his views, which I think uh, most Americans would find fairly extreme today, uh, are nonetheless um, used as a way in which to cloud the segregationist legacies of private school movement today. Let me ask a, a, a question in a slightly different direction. I know that that there have been uh, ongoing conversations in New Hampshire, where I am at the moment, uh, about uh, charter schools. And in my experience in listening to those public discussions, often the, the proponents will lead by highlighting the benefits in particular to students who may have particular kinds of educational needs that are not being met by the public school system. Um, can you talk a little bit about about what when when you hear those kinds of arguments, uh, how do you think about them? Well, the way I think about them is that um, we have we have fought and struggled for over a half a century to make our public schools truly democratic in the sense that they do not discriminate against students on the basis of race, or gender, or, or even disability, uh, or, and, and, or uh, sexual preference in many, or religion, or many, uh, a host of things that we think are irrational, uh, an irrational basis for, for deciding uh, who to accept and who not to accept in the challenge of education. Private schools, and charter schools, not all of them, but many of them, get to pick and choose who comes in the door. They, it's, they're not open to all in many cases. Certainly private schools aren't, and many, many charter schools are not. And that runs very sure there are failures in the public schools. There are shortcomings in the public schools. Uh, they're not failures or shortcomings uh, that of the law. They're not failures and shortcomings generally of people's effort to try to do something. Usually it's a shortcoming of capacity, funding, and uh, sometimes a, uh, a conflict of, of interests uh, that, that occur even in democratic institutions. So I think we begin with the notion that how do we how do we justify a public school system in which we allow government funding of a school that gets to pick and choose who can enter and usually on a basis that they alone get to decide whether it's rational or irrational so you know that that means in a, in a private school system for example like the one uh, here in Georgia uh, we found, uh, when I was at SEF, we found that as many as one-third of all the private schools in the state of Georgia had specific policies that uh, discriminated against gay students. Uh, they simply would not admit them. Uh, they simply 
said that if uh, if you were in fact gay, you were uh, you you would be expelled. Uh, they many of them uh, actually had uh, curricula which talk about uh, being gay is uh, is a mortal sin, and uh, one one particular Christian based curriculum that was uh, in in a goodly number of schools in Georgia uh, taught that uh, being gay was uh, no better than being a rapist or a murderer, and that's a direct quote. So. Do we, do we want public funds to support schools like this? Schools that get to decide who's a good student, who's a worthy student of, of education? I don't think so. You're listening to the New Books Network and the Public Policy Channel. We have been speaking with Steve Suits, who is the author of Overturning Brown, the Segregationist Legacy of the Modern School Choice Movement from New South Books. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, and thanks a lot for your interest. Uh, Y'all come.